We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. You know, support for our military takes many forms. We do it here at American Warrior Radio by sharing the stories so the civilians can understand the sacrifices, the heroism, and the leadership that our military families take on on our behalf. We've had folks like Gary Sinise on the show that support the military by raising a significant amount of money and then donating the funds back for critical needs. But sometimes the military has a need that needs to be fixed. Today we're going to talk with a gentleman who stepped up to address that need and it led him to an entirely new business. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Mr. Tom Kubinek, CEO of Securit. Well, thank you very much. It's interesting, Tom, and I have very often I have people on the show who start off in one vein in life and then somewhere down the line end up in something completely different and disconnected. You were literally a rock star. I was a, uh, yeah, I started playing guitar when I was about 12, 13 years old. By the time I was 16, that's all I did. And I got graduated from high school. I was playing in bars when I was in high school. And, uh, yeah, that's what, that was my goal in life. I played about seven, eight hours a day and uh, ended up moving out to uh, Hollywood, pursuing a life as a uh, rock guitar player. And I, I developed tendonitis in my arms. Um, I actually, I was playing too much. Mm. And, uh I was working on some very technical, for you musicians out there, I was transcribing Paganini's Capris on violin on the guitar, and I blew my elbows out, and uh, it ended my career. I was 20, 26, um, and I just, you know, Guitar Player Magazine had just done an article on me. Um, they put up this notice, you know, who's, who's the best, who are the best unknown guitarists? And I was not playing in a band at the time. I sent them a demo tape, and... Uh, I was one of the guys they did an article on, which was kind of launching my career, I guess. It was the phone started ringing at that point. Um, that's That was the magazine of, of guitar music, of guitarists back in the day. Getting in, the, getting in there with a feature article was uh, was huge, and the tendonitis hit me shortly after. So it was a, uh, I got really close to, to realizing a dream and wasn't able to, but I had a tough year or two, but I rolled up my sleeves. I said, I've got to, do, I've got to survive. And I, uh, I took a job telemarketing computer supplies because they didn't require any experience or education. And you know, all I knew how to do really well was play guitar. And instead of practicing guitar six, eight hours a day, I immersed myself in the world of sales, read everything I could, listened to audio tapes, and just said, I've got to figure this out. It took me several years. And uh, I worked for my first company. I quit. I just they weren't really an honest company. Got another work started working for a guy named Rick Rusin who really taught me how to sell. And I went off on my own a couple of years later, started a telemarketing business, built that up to a pretty decent company, and uh, sold to my partner. I went off on my own with a company called Greenline Data in 1993, and doing the same thing, and uh, got into the internet in the late 90s and started making websites. Uh, this is how I get into the military. So Greenline Data sells computer supplies, starts selling tape racks, the big metal racks that would hold backup tapes for you younger people. Um, <laughs> computers back in the day, companies would back them up literally on thousands of backup tapes. And they had these whole libraries to organize them all. Some of them had robotic 
systems to grab tapes because you had to, to get your data. You actually had to pull it out of an archive of tapes. So we, I created taperack.com, and in a matter of a couple of years, we became one of the largest sellers of computer tape racks in the country. The HIPAA laws came out, which was that all hospitals had to lock patient records. All their laptops had to be locked if they weren't being carried by a, by a physician. So we started securelaptopstorage.com. And I had, I had about 25 different websites all linked together back when you kind of do that to kind of spam slash game the system a little bit. And we became a very large seller of secure laptop storage. And then in 2002, I got a phone call from a guy who said, hey, can you guys store an MP5? And I'm like, sure. What's an MP5? Because <laughs> I, I didn't know. And he said, well, it's a little machine gun. And I started laughing. And I go, who is this? He was with the FBI. We talked for about 20 minutes. And I said, you know, I think we can come up with something for you. And uh, give, me, give me a little bit of time. Give me a week or so. I just want to spin some things around. So I started doing my own research. And uh, this was long before Google, back in the days of Yahoo and various search engines. And started just doing research on weapon storage. Um, I knew nothing about any of this, but I quickly started coming across articles and references to the military and armories failing and struggling. The U.S. military, you know, come out during the Gulf War in that time, they were transitioning from the M16 standard battle rifle to the M4, which is a, you know, we consider that a weapon system. Smaller, modular, it's, you know, you got different barrels, you got a lot of different optics. Um, certainly in the SOCOM and the Special Forces community, each guy can configure his gun uniquely to his needs. I, I know, Tom, let me interrupt there. How does an armory yeah. fail? I, I, explain that to us. Okay, so what's happened is since Vietnam, the military has fielded M-16s, and the soldiers went into combat with an M-16, and in the armory where they secure weapons, and it's all it's very regulated, very structured, that's where they all get stored. Well, now we're moving into the M4. Now they've got a rifle that's smaller. Well, it doesn't fit. All the racks they have are designed for M16s. They also have racks for their machine guns, and they've got gear. They've got what they classify now as high-value gear, the optics, the electronics, from night vision to thermal imaging to the, uh, you've got thermal, the thermal scopes, the thermal optics, and IR illuminators. All that gear now is being stored in the armory. They have no capacity for it. They don't have, they don't have the equipment to store it. They're not even sure how to store it. So the armories are, are just a mess. There's stuff piled everywhere. So I started working with the company that made my laptop cabinets. It was a Canadian firm. I knew the owner well. He and I worked together um, designing the laptop stuff. We became good friends. I called them. I said, Steve, I got this crazy opportunity. What do you guys think about we should make weapon racks. And he started laughing. He said, I got a call from the Canadian military. They're looking for the same thing. So we started working out a, on a product. He made it. It was his base design that I did. I took it and kind of did a few feature changes to it. We came up with what we called the integrated weapon storage platform. And we started selling it in the U.S. He was selling it in Canada around 2003. And we were plodding along. We were so new to the military, and we didn't know anything about what we were doing. But we were making headway. I was getting appointments. I was getting out and seeing some bases, which normally is a telemarketing organization. You never travel. But I really wanted to learn the space. 
it got to 2007, and U.S. Army Special Forces, which really, I didn't have much access to those guys. The so the you know, back then was called USAFEC. They their armies were really struggling because they were they had the most high value gear of any of any groups. And here are you know America's top tier fighting force, special forces, and their armories are absolute mess. So we caught wind of a solicitation that was coming out for uh, an arms room assessment contract. They wanted to hire a company to come in, survey, and tour all their armories and write a very detailed report as to why they're failing and to make recommendations and how to improve. We, we caught wind of this. Now, once the contract, once the solicitation is posted, all we can do is submit a bid. We can ask questions, but you can't talk to anybody. That's just the way contracting works. We knew it was pending, so we figured out who was in charge of this thing. We scheduled a meeting with a colonel down at Fort Bragg. At this point, I had formed Securit as a company. as a, It was a brand within my business, Greenline Data. It wasn't a separate company yet. But I had three people that we worked together, and... Uh, for secure it. And Gary Myrick, who was my, uh, did sales with me. He and I went down to brag to meet with this Colonel. We know nothing about this, but nobody else does either. This is all new. There's no experts. So we walked into the office. Wait, and I, I tell you, and, uh, Tom, let me interrupt there. Cause I know where you're yeah. coming out with this. And I, we have to take a commercial break real quick. Uh, I think it's a great story. How, how did you initially, did you just look in the, well, we'll get to that after the break. I just say there aren't phone books sure. anymore, but I'm an old guy yeah. like you. I actually remember the, uh, what were they, like the 12-inch floppy disks that would go oh, yeah. on the tanties? So I know exactly what you're talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buell Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio, back with more from Tom Kubiniak, the CEO of Securit. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Tom Kubinek. He's the uh, CEO of Securit and uh, started off as literally a rock star guitar player. I, mean, I, was, I was a heavy metal guitar player in the 80s. Hair was pretty crazy back then. <laughs> Tom, we were talking about how you, in the first week, how you, I wouldn't say stumbled in, but you recognized an opportunity, a need amongst the American military for better organizing and, and securing their armories. And uh, you... You didn't know anything about the business, so you did a typical entrepreneur thing. And uh, did you just look in the phone book and say, okay, call Fort Bragg? We had had a dealer who was a guy who was working for us, setting up dealers around military bases or people who were already selling, you know, shelving and warehouse equipment to the military. And we get them to go in and, and look for armories that need to be redone. And as one of our dealers just caught wind of this. He happened to be in Bragg, and somebody said, hey, you, you do weapons storage? Hey, you got to talk to this guy. And all of a sudden, he was in front of the colonel, and he called us and said, you guys, this is coming. So we got the meeting scheduled. You know, we're, we fly down, and, you know, we're at Fort Bragg. We're at you know, Hilton Garden Inn. You know, were up in the morning, we're just like, you know, our shirt's white enough. You know, I just, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. But I walked into the meeting with Gary, and Gary looked, I mean, neither one of us were military, but Gary looked like an operator. He, he looked like a hardcore military guy. So we walked in. I walked up. The colonel shook his hand. I said, hi, colonel. My name's Tom Kubinek. I'm considered the leading authority in small arms storage and armory design. I really think we're the company to handle this for you. And we sat down. had a great conversation. Talked for about 20 minutes and uh, going over the details of what they were looking for. And 
we left and we're going to go put our bid together. We walked out and Gary looks at me and goes, what? He goes, what was that? And I just, I said, Gary, nobody knows this. Nobody knows how to do this. I said, I walked in and said I was the, the top guy. I was the guy. And nobody can dispute it. I said, Gary, we win this. We've got to back it up. We've got to, we've got to, do, we've got to pull something amazing off for these guys. So we got to act and be like pros. So we put together our bid and we were up against like L3, Harris, you know, these multi-billion dollar defense contractors. And we're a three-person company. We put together a good proposal, very simple. I'm sure our price was a lot less than everybody else because we had no overhead. And we won the contract. And for the next 18 months, I was traveling to every single, at that time it was called USAFIC, U.S. Army Special Forces Command, all the, the special forces, Army Special Forces armories. And I'd spend the day with the armor and watch him work, interview, talk to him, really spending the time watching and seeing the struggles and seeing the things happening. We took a lot of photographs. We took a lot of notes. And at the culmination of that, we had prepared a very extensive report about all the problems they had and all the issues. And then we started making recommendations. And it was during that time that I came up with the idea for what we called the Secure Tactical Weapon Storage Platform, which we now simply call Cradle Grid. And it all revolved around simplicity. There are other companies that come into the space with modular weapon racks. We had the one, the Dasco system, which was the one that I was working with Steve Moulton in Canada. That was a like a basic cabinet, and they had 270 different brackets to hold all the guns. So if you had an M16, you used one bracket. If you had a 240 Bravo, you used a different bracket. If you, and each gun had its own bracket. Space Savers, another company, had a similar rack. Again, they had probably 160 different components. The problem is the military gets the system in. When it's brand new, it works perfectly. But three months later, all of a sudden, they've got some different guns. They've, they're not, they've got to field six more 240s. They're swapping out these for those. And all of a sudden, they got the wrong brackets. they got the wrong components. And the, and the armories just start getting worse and worse and worse. You make a good point because I've been shooting for a long time and, and rifles have changed, you know, where it used to be you'd have yeah. like your deer rifle and you might mount a scope out. Well, you probably mounted a scope on it. But now you've got optics. You've got all these different configurations. It's almost like a, a Lego set that, that shoots bullets. So the, the rack's got to be adaptable. Absolutely. I'll hit on that because it's, it's a very common parable. It's, it's a, how technology flows from military to civilian. Our solution with the military was a large, non-stackable, 84-inch high cabinet rack with one moving part. It was a injection-molded cradle or saddle, and it would hold everything from an MP5 to an M4 to an M16, 240s, 249s, up to 50 cals to shoulder launch weapon systems. We could do the Carl Gustav, some of the anti-tank guns, so the armor could walk up to my rack without any tools, adjust, grab the saddle, position it, and put the gun in in real time. It was fast, simple. It, had, it didn't require any instructions. You simply could, It was just intuitive. And then the rest of our system was bins and trays for storing gear that you could source at Home Depot. You could buy them from any hardware store in America. We made it compatible. You know, all the systems out there, all the other competitors were all proprietary. You buy their rack, you got to buy everything from them. Our thought was, you know, when these guys are downrange, they, they, can't, they can't come back and buy something. they got to be able to source stuff 
wherever they are. So we made our you know open architecture, so it's compatible with all sorts of other storage gear. And we launched that product in 2008. By 2011, we were the largest suppliers to the U.S. military. Uh, the company really blew up. They loved their system. It, it, it absolutely worked. It solved problems. And we were off to the races. Um, the company was growing like crazy. We had a lot, there was a lot going on. I had a, I'm a pilot. I purchased a little beach bonanza, and I was flying all over the, the Northeast into the Midwest, going to military bases and meetings. It was quite exciting. And then we hit sequestration, which was the forced military cutbacks. Now, this was during the Obama administration. This was not an Obama problem. This was a congressional problem. Mm-hmm. Congress in the 90s or early 2000s, was they were arguing about budgets and, and getting their budgets under control and fiscally responsible. And Republicans agreed to a budget way back then only if they put in this thing called sequestration where if we don't have the, the budget balanced or within these guidelines by 2012, there's going to be forced dramatic military cutbacks that'll, that are so severe, there's no way we won't get the budget done. They basically kicked it down the road to somebody else's problem. Well, flash forward that those 12 years and 2012 comes and they didn't get the budget done. And boom, sequestration. So I had this booming business that all of a sudden we went five months without getting a single order and just, you know, making payroll every two weeks, bleeding my cash down. I I ended up, you know, I sold the plane. I sold almost everything I had. And my wife and I were at a point of selling our house. The only thing really had a value and just buying a little, like a little farmhouse somewhere out in the country that was really inexpensive. I'd laid off at that point. Most of the people that worked for me were down to about a four-person company. So we picked up one order, and we slow and picked up another, and things very slowly started to turn around. But let me interrupt you there, because I think there's, just like Special Forces, you know, they adapt and overcome, and that's what you found you had to do with your company, and uh, that led you into the next phase of Secured. I want to talk yeah. about that after we come back from the break. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia, talking with Tom Kubinek, the CEO of Secured. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia, having a great conversation, a fascinating conversation with Tom Kubinek. He's the CEO of Secure It. Tom, you're describing, and I remember the sequestration days, that really impacted your, your business. And, I mean, what was your, your takeaway from that, you know, about doing business with the government? I mean, the check always clears, but... Yeah, it, it, it's, the, the big challenge was, no matter how good we were, no matter how much they liked my product, no matter how effective we were with the military, if Congress turned off the faucet of money, we were dead in the water. We were not in control of our destiny. We were not in control of what we were doing. And uh, it was a good wake-up call, but it was at that time that we made the determination 
to go into the consumer products group, to go into the gun safe industry, take, you know, almost 20 years of military armory experience to make products for civilians because, and we we'd mentioned it briefly earlier, the military changes that happened, you know, during the Gulf War, the transition of the M16 to the M4 from a common rifle to a battle rifle to modular weapon systems, we're seeing that in the consumer, you know, civilian world now. And you go back 30 years, my grandfather had, he had a cabinet with, you know, 30 out six, some shotguns, and most everything was iron sights. A scope was a rarity. And you look at it now, and there's so much technology. There's so many things coming into the firearms industry. There's so many things that attach to a gun or things that you use with your gun that you want to store with your gun. Gun safes are like old armories. They're designed to hold just basic stick rifles with nothing on them. You know, you you buy a gun safe that says 40-gun capacity, you're going to be lucky to fit 12 modern rifles into it. You know, just they just don't work. So we brought our technology in with a line of lightweight, modular, fast-access solutions to bring scalability and flexibility to the consumer market. Tom, you just said something that struck me. You, you know, I buy a gun safe. It's advertised for 40 weapons, but I can only fit 12. I mean, there's there's some ethical questions there, aren't there? It's kind of like in the grocery store now where I don't know if you've noticed, but the cereal boxes are, are taller to give you the impression of getting more cereal, but they're also thinner. It's, um, well, according to, I met with, you know, America's largest safe manufacturer, and we decided to go into retail. We figured let's license our technology to the safe industry. And I met with several companies, and, uh, you know, I, I installed my system into one of their safes, and they said, Tom, your, your system holds 12 guns. That's a 40-gun safe. I said, with all due respect, that safe holds 12 guns properly. And I, I said, you're stating 40 guns. That's ridiculous. And he, his response was, well, that's our industry's little white lie. They say 36, we say 40. And I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, you know, A, I'm not going to partner with gun safe manufacturers. And B, your customers are smarter than you think. People tolerate it, but they don't like it. You know, all of our safes are what we call true capacity. A six-gun safe holds six guns. Then my competitor makes the same size safe, and they say 14 guns. Then a shopper may say, oh, I want a 14-gun safe. But look, you know, everything we do is based on everything we do for the military. And when we define proper storage, what we're talking about is all guns are stored free and clear. Even with optics, nothing is touching. No guns are banging into each other. You've got straight-line access to all your guns. I mean, you open a cabinet with one arm, you can remove a rifle, and then close it with that same arm. You never dig through guns to get to the one you want. That's also organizational awareness. You glance at a cabinet, you know if anything's missing. Mm-hmm. You know, in a packed, big, deep safe, you could have a twenty two that's that's not there. You might not know it. I mean, you go to the range, you've got your kids, a bunch of people, things going on, like a range day or something, and all the guns are put away, and all of a sudden you realize you're missing a twenty two. You, you might not know it for a year. What percentage of your work would you say now is, is government? And I assume you also work with uh, police jurisdictions on their armories as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do a lot of law enforcement. In fact, we're we are the, I'm sure we're the largest supplier to the law enforcement for gun storage. Right now, the retail side of our business is probably 85% of our business. It's grown. We've made Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies in America twice in the last three years. So it's been a oh, it's four years. So yeah, it's uh the retail side really took off. And you know what we bring is lightweight modular stores. Just because it's not 800 pounds 
doesn't mean it's not secure. The, the weight of a gun safe is drywall. We use the same gauge steel as everybody else. We're just not lining it with all that drywall and all that carpeting and all that nonsense. Uh, let me, um, Tom, hey, folks, by the way, check it out, securitgunstorage.com, securitgunstorage.com, because I'm, I'm going to take a, a personal privilege as a radio host here to kind of geek out a little bit here. Well, for example, we had Brandon Maddox, the founder and CEO of Silencer Central. And, you know, people, when people think of silencers, they think about the, you know, the assassin. And it's actually technically called the suppressor, not a that. But when people talk about safes, I'm thinking of that big old massive thing, maybe on wheels that you had to blow up the whole train car to rob. And it didn't always work. But what, what I hear you saying is that weight is a fallacy when it comes to security. If I'm interpreting that correctly. Well, in, in the gun safe industry, it is. I mean, the original safe design, fireproof safe, patented in 1865 by Silas Herring. It's a double-walled steel safe filled with cement, and that's what safes have been ever since. The gun safe industry in the 70s realized to make a safe big enough for firearms, it was just way too heavy. So they eliminated the outer steel. They eliminated the concrete fill. The inside metal box became the outside of the safe, then they lined it with drywall. Now, they say that's for fire rating. It's actually, they line it with drywall because the safes are deep to hold guns, and they make the doors really heavy. And the problem is when you open the door, if the safe is empty, they have a a, a tip-over problem. Mm -hmm. They can. So they line it, they fill the back of the safe with drywall so the safe won't tip over. The marketing brochure focuses your attention on the door. They all talk about, Level one security is your basic lock safe with doors and bolts. Level two is corner bolts and a steel plate so you can't drill through a certain point. Level three is plate steel across the door, corner bolts, and a better lock. It all talks about the door. When you look at how safes are breached, they simply cut a hole in the side of the safe. We've demonstrated it, a modern carbide blade. It's a blade that is used in the cement industry for cutting rebar in a circular saw. I got one mounted up in a cheap skill saw I bought in 1987, and I cut an 18-inch hole in the side of a safe about 22 seconds. I took a safe, and it was a it was a big American-made safe, a well-known brand. We had a video of it, and I walked around the top of the safe, and I cut the whole safe in half. The people who want to break into safes already know this. Safes are cut open. They're not pried open. They're not dug. They're not stolen. People come in, they cut the sides open. So I look at a brochure with a safe. It's pictured next to a pool table and a river rock fireplace with a beautiful view out the window, this gorgeous, like, dark maroon safe with this nice lettering on it. And the ad copy talks about heritage and heirloom and investment. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're showing off a safe? Are you crazy? This is the most secure thing in your house. Why do you want to tell people you have one? All of our safes are designed to go in closets or other discrete locations in your home. We call it the principles of decentralized storage. Or instead of putting all your safes in one big cabinet, buy two or three small cabinets and locate safes where it makes more sense. You know, front hall closet, your kitchen pantry. You know, there's there, we have a whole methodology about how to lay out firearm storage in your home where it's all secure, yet you've got, you know, three-second access anywhere in your home. And, Tom, I want to talk a little bit more about that because that's one thing. I, I, I visited your website, uh, securitgunstorage.com, and I found two things. One, your gun storage safes are extremely, well, it's all relative, but they're lightweight. I mean, your your Model 40 only weighs 100 pounds. I mean, me and a buddy could yeah. move that thing up and down the stairs. But they're also very reasonably priced. Is that by design because you really want folks to 
to disperse their storage so that if they do get broken into, they're not going to lose everything? Yeah. Okay. I'll hold that thought because I sure. saw an interview where you were talking about uh, the general patterns of bad guys, and I think our listeners could also benefit from hearing that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Tom Kubinick, CEO of Secured. Uh, listen, you can hear this podcast other 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Check it out and share these messages with our friends. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Tom Kubinick. He's the CEO of Securit. They have a great uh, visit, SecuritGunStorage.com. Tom really got his start in this business, working, uh, fulfilling contracts for our military and our law enforcement agencies. And then they expanded the program to really provide a product that all of us who are gun owners can use. And, and Tom, I, I saw an interview you did, and you were sharing some very interesting things that all of us out there need to know, particularly if, well, even if you're not a gun owner, if you've got your, your valuables and you're putting them somewhere, yeah. and the the idea of dispersing it, your valuables throughout your home, is a good one. And not, I think just even if you have a response plan in place, but let's talk about fires a little bit. I, I see these ads for these gun safes that are, you know, fireproof, quote unquote, I use the quotation fingers. Is there really such a thing? There's no such thing as fireproof safes. Fire resistant? Sure. Are gun safes fire-resistant? Not really. And here's what's happening. And we've been through this. We make what's called the true safe. It's the cement-filled safe. It weighs 1,100 pounds. This is where we really learned about fire ratings. See, a company makes safes. You want to have a fire rating. They go to one of the companies that rates safes. They put the safe in an oven with temperature probes in the safe. They bring the oven up to 1,400 degrees or 13. There's a couple different scenarios. And the safe sits there and slowly heats up. Once the safe breaks 350 degrees internal, that's from boom. The safe is now busted. That is the rating. If it goes an hour, they give it a one-hour rating. Here's the problem. Fires aren't static. Fires are convective. The heat transfer in an actual fire is order of magnitude faster. The best way to think about this is you want to make a pizza. You turn your oven up, usually 450 to 500 degree oven, and you put a frozen pizza in your oven. You can put your hand in that hot oven and hold it there for probably a minute before it gets to a point where you got to pull it up because the hot air transfers heat to your hand quite slowly. Now, picture a jet engine, small jet engine mounted onto a bench. The exhaust is 500 degrees, moving at 60 miles an hour. And you put your hand in the exhaust stream, it'll burn the skin off your bones in less than a second. It'll rip you apart. A fire in a home, the air can be moving well in excess of 60 miles an hour. In a big fire, it's a torrent. Mm -hmm. And a safe with a one-hour rating will go five minutes. Our true safe, we did a standard oven fire test. It went two hours and 20 minutes. I would give that safe a 30 to 45-minute actual rating. 
no more than that. Now, that safe is a monster. It is double-walled steel filled with a concrete composite, and it is a true beast. It is available. We, we sell it through a company called Safe and Vault because we don't have the logistics to deal with the shipping. We just, it's just outside of our wheelhouse. Well, let, let me ask you, what I think are you saying is you may not need what you think you need because, and I'm thinking, if I've got a safe and my guns are in there for however long, I don't know that I ever want to shoot that gun again. I don't think it's safe anymore. That's the other side of this is you don't need a fire rating. It's not because you're not going to shoot the guns again. You don't know how hot they got. We cooked the safe off last summer. Out at the, we have a hunting ranch. We did a big fire. We burned a safe, and this, the 90-minute safe went 20 minutes, and, and temperature probes blew up. This was in a, in a big wood fire. Well, we put the fire out and went and cooked some hot dogs, and we had some lunch, and, and went back and looked, and about 20 minutes later, the internal temperature of the safe was 790 degrees. Hmm. The hot metal continued to transfer. Well, if you've got guns in there, and you've got chassis guns, metal guns, no wood, you know what? Hardened steel breaks down around 380 to 400 degrees. Annealed steel, that's your barrel, that starts changing properties around 650 degrees. You don't know how hot your guns got. The reality is you should not shoot them. So when we look at fire ratings, we don't offer a fire rating. However, when you decentralize your storage and you've got guns stored in discrete locations throughout your home, you've got a good fire protection because when you look at actual fire data, the odds of a home burning to the ground are so small. Most fires in a home, in fact, 90, I think 93, 94% of all fires in a home are in the kitchen and contained to a pot in the stove or to the oven. Actual heat, open flame fires in a home tend to damage the corner of one room. It's usually human error, carelessness, cigarettes or something along those lines, and the fire is usually out. Because most people, if you live in a, with a paid fire force, their response time is minutes. I've got a volunteer. My response time is 11 minutes. Get a couple of good safes and uh, disperse them throughout the home and just get some insurance. Insurance is simple. We can talk a little bit about decentralized storage and criminal behavior because this applies more to just guns. And a lot of people, they may not know this, they may not think about it. So when you talk about home security and home defense on a broad level, if a thief burglar breaks into your home, He's going master bathroom, master bedroom, home office den, dining room, and he leaves. He's in and out of the house, typically less than 10 minutes. Now, we got this information by combing uh, FBI and Justice Department crime data, and I did a ton of research. for a, It was a paper I wrote and a speech I delivered on the subject, so I did a ton of research. These come in, they're looking for prescription drugs, number one, master bathroom. Then they don't find that master bedroom, they're looking for valuables. Nothing there. Then they go to home office den, again, looking for something to steal, and then a dining room. The minute they find something, they typically take it, and they're out of the house. If they find drugs, good, they're good, and they leave. If they don't find drugs, they go to the next thing. The minute they find something, they leave. So people with jewelry, people with watches or something valuable in your, in your you know, closet in a master bedroom, it's the worst place to store things. Best, you know, if you've got a kitchen pantry, put a box in a pantry. It's one of the safest rooms in the house is a kitchen. These are not there to steal your food. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't. It's, that's not a marketable product for them. So when we look at firearm storage, decentralizing storage, well, master bedroom, um, I recommend you know, one firearm and a fast access safe. If a husband and wife are both proficient, you have one firearm per, but no more than that. Then I look at a kitchen, kitchen pantry. 
or in a drawer. I mean, a fast, small, fast access safe and a drawer cabinet. I've got a larger collection, so I actually have a one of our Agile cabinets in my pantry. It's got six rifles, one of which is I consider a defense firearm. It's AR-15 with a magazine in it. I mean, it's, it's ready to roll. Then I look at the closet by a front door. I've got a small cabinet in there. I've got part of my collection, some lever guns, a couple of hunting rifles, but I've got a pump shotgun and I've got AR-15, both rounds in the tube. It's, it's not it's not racked. And I've got the AR-15. If somebody's at my front door, I'm very quick. Then I look at a den, small handgun, fast access safe. I just go through a home kind of laying it out that way. The other critical component for this, and this is where we're spending a lot of t- a lot of focus right now with the firearms training community, is training for access. All firearms training starts with the gun in your hand or in your holster. And it's all about draw. I'm talking about handguns now, but your draw, you do all your dry fire drills, all of your mechanics. And if you've been to those classes, they always teach you, you dry fire, you practice your mechanics every day to build that muscle memory so in a true firefight, you can perform without having to think about it. We want to incorporate access training. So you get one of my safes every day for 30 days. You practice that combination, and you open the safe. Then close it, and you do it for 30 days, calm, cool, precisely doing the combination and opening the safe. You build muscle memory, and, you know, with my safes, if I'm standing at my safe, I can remove a rifle from my cabinet and be in a position to discharge that weapon in less than two seconds. With a handgun storage solution, I could have the handgun in my hands turning towards the door just over a second from the time I touch the keypad. And it's fast access locks and fast access cabinets, but it's also you've got to incorporate that in your firearms training because all guns need to be locked. This idea that, hey, I got a big safe, but I keep one gun next to my bed unlocked. We've got to get past that because every year, People die from accidental discharge. Every year, guns are stolen and used in crime. Our battle for our Second Amendment rights would be easier if every gun in America was properly secured. Tom, we're running out of time. We've got just about a minute left. I, I did hear you also make a very good comment that it's also important to have an escape route. You don't necessarily, just because you're armed, doesn't mean you necessarily want to engage with that bad guy. Not, you know, None of us want to shoot a guy, and especially in your case. I mean, you're you're a guitarist. You're not a... Diner. No, it's it's the last. It's, remember, it's a defensive weapon. It's not an offensive weapon. I, if I'm home alone, I'm armed, and I'm out of my house. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, I'm not looking, I'm not looking for conflict. Uh, Tom, it sounds really fascinating. It's been very educational. I hope. I mean, it sounds like those government contracts and the way weapons and and uh, the systems are changing so much. You should have a a pretty good amount of business. But I'm really pleased to see what you're doing for the rest of us out there, the civilians out there. Ladies and gentlemen, check out secureitgunstorage.com. And I think you and again, your your safes are very reasonably priced, Tom. I'm going to be looking more into that. Tom, thank you so much for spending time with us today. All right, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another great show on the can. Don't forget, you can find over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com, or also on all your favorite stream platforms, whatever it might be. If it's Spotify or Apple or iHeart, we're on all those areas. Please, please share these messages. Until next time, take care. Listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.